and welcome to the latest installment of the Music History Project. We are going to give you some more of our favorite web clips in this episode, so stay tuned. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Dale. And Dan Del Fiorentino. And Mike Mullins. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a program that is over 3,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of the other interviews that aren't featured, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. So this is exciting. This is our second installment of the uh, concept of picking our own favorite segments of interviews known as a web clip up on the NAM website. And it's exciting because this is sort of uh, back behind the scenes stories or reasons why we think we uh, wanted to share these particular ones. Uh, I thought the first one went off so well that we decided to do a second. And um, as always, I think it should be a tradition since this is the second installment. Mike should explain what a web clip is. Hooray. Well, I'm glad you asked again, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> a, a web clip is um, basically the part of a interview that we post to our website. Um, so the interviews usually range between 45 minutes and several hours. Um, so since we can't post every full interview, we like to take a short snippet of them. And we, we like to not make it a summary of the interview. We try to find a cool story or some insight to a specific event. And we highlight that and we call it a web clip. Well done. Thank you. I like your use of the word snippet. Snippet. Yes. I enjoyed that thoroughly. So it sounds like I get to lead off today. Um, and my favorite web clip for this episode is from Laura Whitmore, who was interviewed show, winter show. Summer show. Summer show. Last year. Oh, it's 2017. Mm -hmm. Oh, feels like a lifetime ago. Um, and Laura heads the Women's International Music Network, which is responsible for bringing you events like the She Rock Awards, which happen at the Winter Show in Anaheim, which is a really cool event, highlighting uh, just women in the music products industry and their contributions. And she's a real champion um, for women in the industry, which I just think is very commendable. And I think, like many women, um, the goal is to not have to set ourselves apart in the industry one day. But for now, we're going to do everything we can to make sure that, uh, you know, we get the recognition um, that we deserve. And Laura's a huge champion of that. So we really appreciate her contributions, not only for the uh, Oral History Project, um, but also for her contributions to the programs of the shows and her other efforts. So without further ado, here is Laura's web clip. The first event that we did for the Women's International Music Network was a multi-day workshop event that we did in upstate New York called the Women's Music Summit. And we brought in a bunch of, you know, performers, big name artists actually, to do workshops. And women came and stayed at this resort for three days and lived together, made music together, performed, learned. And it was an incredible event, really complicated for the first event. <laughs> but you know, as a producer, I was like, okay, I know what the next thing is that's gonna happen, I'm gonna do this. And at the end of the event, 
the women were so moved by it and so inspired that it really surprised me. I didn't realize how powerful that was to bring these women together. And that sort of launched me on the path to create the Women's International Music Network. I was like, wow, like there's, there's power here. There's like power to change. I know that some people's lives were completely changed from that event. And so, uh, you know, shortly after that, we conceived of the She Rocks Awards and the Women's International Music Network, which sort of came to be together because I wanted to do the She Rocks Awards and I felt like it can't just be an award show. There has to be more to it than that. And so the Women's International Music Network was started as a home for the She Rocks Awards. But then, you know, it became so much more than just that award show. So the very first She Rocks Awards, I guess it was 2012, um, was a breakfast. We sort of felt like, well, it's the cheapest meal of the day. <laughs> There's not a ton of breakfast at NAMM. We won't have a lot of competition. You know, it's a way to get started. And we were very fortunate to have sponsors come on board and help us cover the costs for it so that we were able to offer it for free. Um, and, you know, it was a lot of planning, but it was a really inspiring event. The room was full, um, and that sort of kicked us off. And then the next year, we did a breakfast again, and we knew we had outgrown the, grown, outgrown, outgrown the room <laughs> that we were in. And uh, the third year in, Nam came to us and said, hey, we love what you're doing with the She Rocks Awards. Do you want to do it in our ballroom on Friday night? And I was like, wow. Uh, you know, here we are in a room that holds 250 people, and here's Nam's ballroom that holds 850 people. That's terrifying. <laughs> uh, what does that mean, you know, production cost-wise and everything? It meant that the production cost went up five times as much as we were paying to do it as the breakfast. So it was really scary to jump from that breakfast event to the evening ballroom event, but. I kind of felt like, well, you know, sometimes these opportunities come along and you have to go for it. You have to take a leap of faith. So we did. We sort of rose to the occasion. And I was very fortunate to have a friend that works at a record label who was sort of my therapist. <laughs> he was on the phone with me every day saying, you should do this and you should do this and I can get you that artist. And he got me like the bangles and, you know, some other people to wow. become involved with it. And, and we really uh, hit it out of the park uh, that year. Um, it was a fabulous event. We filled the room and we had, you know, this amazing production, an amazing like Grammys level production almost. And that sort of made me, inspired me. It's made me realize like, you know, y you don't know what you're capable of until you're challenged. And that, you know, maybe you need to set your sights a little higher because you, you can rise to that. Um, and so we've had that kind of event ever since then. And we've had some wonderful artists and women behind the scenes that have come on board, that are inspired by it, that we have all kinds of volunteers help us run it. Um, you know, for a huge event like that, I think we're very frugal <laughs> in the way we do it because I mean, we don't pay anybody to perform. You know, people donate their time to help us make it happen. And, you know, there's expenses involved, but it's, it, you'd be like shocked at how we make that event come together. And it's a lot of time, 
for myself and for my staff. I now have a director that I brought on board this year. Thank goodness. <laughs> and a bunch of support staff, too, that are freelancers that you know write articles for us or post news or do our social media. Um, so we have a team now. Um, and that really helps me because doing it alone is hard. Uh, but it, it is inspiring to me when other women come to me and say, you know, this, is, this has meant something to me and I really appreciate what you do and it helps keep me going because it's, it's a lot of energy. I just think that's, I mean, the, the event and the growth of it and everything is just phenomenal. And, uh, and her dedication, yeah. clearly, mm. to yeah. detail, you know, uh, just wonderful. Yeah, so if you're ever at the NAM show, the winter show, and you have some time, it's definitely a top billeted event. You should try and get out there to the She Rocks. So thank you to Laura for always uh, crafting that exceptional event and for her continued support of NAM and for women in the music industry and music products industry. All right, I think it's time for Dan's pick. Well, I would like to uh, choose a, um, a segment, a web clip from our interview with uh, Tony Acosta, who is the founder of Luthier Strings in New York City. I'm not going to say much more than that because he tells a story about how the company came about, and I absolutely love just the message of this clip about fa following your passion and not listening to those people who are naysayers and don't believe in you. If you believe in you and you believe in your dream, then that's what you need to do. And there's a couple of great lines from here that I think we're going to be using after you guys hear this clip. Here is Tony Acosta. You have to enjoy what you're doing. I remember the last five years when I was with Lufthansa and I was running to my business and running to this. And I had a future with Lufthansa. I could have retired. When I told my friends, uh, my colleagues, I'm, I'm quitting Lufthansa. You're going to start your own business. I said, you crazy, Tony, at this stage? That was in 1982. And, but I quit Lufthansa only until 1990, you know? And, when I, and, and then I find a space in Manhattan. I, find, I found a couple of, I have about three spaces. So I spoke to my accountant, and he says, if you take that space, you went bankrupt. And uh, he wanted me to take another one, but I love that space. I took it. And he said, he gave me three months. Three months, in three months, I, you won't burn ropes. So I said to Albert, I'm gonna take it. I took the space, and in three months later, I fired him. <laughs> yeah, I tell you, I was so, you know, because you expect your accountant, right? And you, and you, and you trust your accountant, and, and all of a sudden you have no other advisor. But I know, I think you have to follow your intuition. <laughs> what a great line. <laughs> and in three months, I fired him. <laughs> oh, man. Well, that's exactly it. You have to have people surrounding you that support you. And it's a big jump. And for him, he risked, you know, uh, a pension and a future uh, working with the airlines, but decided he was going to follow his dream in the music industry and make these high-end strings, which he continues to do today. That's just a great, uh, very inspirational story. You know, just following your intuition. Hopefully you have good intuition if you're going to follow it. But uh, good on Tony and good message for him. Great job on that one. <laughs> I love that one. Yeah. So who are you guys picking? What, which one do you want to do next? It's like a secret. I don't even know who they are. <laughs> There's the one you I were. The there list. was the one you traveled for and then the one I traveled for. I say your travel first. Okay. Oh, okay. 
So we're going to jump to another one. It was one of my first, I think my only true trip with Dan. Uh, We went out to Chicago and the surrounding area to grab this interview. He worked on it for a very long time. Um, But once we connected with our pal Rick Nielsen of Cheap Trick, it's turned into a really good relationship for Dan. Sure has. Um, So we, Dan and I, trucked out to Rockford, Illinois to grab this interview and this little clip from Rick. I moved from uh, Chicago suburbs to Rockford in 1956 and my dad bought a music store in Rockford. It was a music store that uh, the family that owned it wanted to get out of the business and my my father's brother lived in Rockford and he was one of the first guys involved with music and he, he owned a hi-fi store in Rockford. I don't even know what the name of it was. But he also helped in the development of music, and uh, he said, "Ralph, you got to get out of this. You know, just singing for your living. There's a music store out here." And uh, so we packed up, and we I, I lived at the the Flying Saucer Motel in Rockford for about three months until they, they bought a house. From there, my father started to get heavily into band instruments. And in pianos, and in organs, and guitars. He was uh, the Martin dealer. Uh, the Gibson dealer and Fender dealer were already taken in the area, so he had to get, you know, stuff that you could he could sell. And I helped bring in some really great stuff and some really awful stuff. Uh, I helped him get Vox. Uh, Vox, it's what's happening. You know, I mean, I'm actually in an ad in the uh, senior yearbook of my high school with my band. We're all playing Vox and we all look really ready to go. <laughs> go, go nowhere. Uh, but it was like, yeah, they had that stuff and my dad really would, he dealt mainly, people used to trade their guitars in. They never, nobody had two, you know, a few people of course did. But uh, people would always trade up and so you know, I even I haven't found guitars at uh, car dealerships, not just in Rockford area, but uh, you know, this guy's buying an Edsel, but he's got a Les Paul. He wants to trade in it for down payment. They would call the music store, and it's like, hey, let me go take a look at it. You know, so you can get cool stuff because you know the auto dealers didn't want it, and I I always liked to use guitars because uh, they were cheaper, and you could afford them. Right, you buy new ones, and why would I buy a new one that's only going to get beat up? I like the beat up stuff. It was like, once again, cost factor. So that's how it, I started getting guitars. I mean, I'd, my first Les Paul, I didn't buy from him. I bought it in Rockford at a, at a bookstore, the A bookstore, $65 in 1965, I bought my first Les Paul. I didn't even know Les Paul, whether it was acoustic or hollow body, or I didn't know anything about it, but I'd heard about it because that's what the, the Yardbirds and the Rolling Stones had Les Paul, so I got that, and I could afford a $65, 55 Les Paul. And I still have it to this day. And that 55 Les Paul is probably worth more than his house. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was amazing, because the interview was conducted at his place, and he's just got, it's its almost like a showroom, yeah. the yeah, amount of stuff he's, Absolutely. guitars and amps and stuff like that he's collected mm-hmm. over the time, and he was nice enough to take time out of his day to sh- show us a little bit of his collection. You know, we didn't get to see everything, obviously, right, but... Right. Um, it's pretty impressive. Because yeah. he has one of the largest guitar collections ever. Absolutely, right? mm-hmm. without doubt. 
and he's pretty active with trading and selling and mm-hmm. buying and stuff like that. So it's a rotating kind of collection and stuff like that, which is pretty cool. And it's also neat. It's sort of, uh, you know, when we were thinking about documenting the music industry in the early days of the oral history program, I remember thinking, well, there's some quintessential stories that we really want to get. Everybody sort of thinks about the kid like Mike growing up in the music store, you know, around all the instruments you ever wanted and can play and hang out and, uh, you know, be neat to document some of those stories, especially any of those who went on to have a career in the music industry or you became a musician. Mm -hmm. And so there you go. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Prime example. Yeah. It's kind of twofold for us there. So it worked out real well. Really neat. All right, Dan, what do you got next? Okay, so next I thought we would uh, do a little segment from our interview that was in Del Mar a few years ago with Brian Setzer, one of the founders of the Stray Cats, uh, all-around great musician and loyalist to the Gretsch Guitar Company, great guy. And, uh, you know, this one took a little while to get uh, the interview. Um, in fact, kind of a funny story is uh, we kept asking his people, uh, you know, oh, we want to do this interview. We want to do this interview. I think maybe about six or seven years in a row. And um, um, about the time that um, Scotty Moore, the great guitarist for Elvis, passed away, I said, let's switch our request a little bit and just ask if he wouldn't mind commenting on Scotty Moore, because I know that uh, Brian Setzer was a huge fan, as I am, and I thought maybe he could give us some comments. Well, they didn't even, the the manager that we talked to didn't even take it to Brian. They were like, oh, he'd love to talk about it. Let's do it. Let's set it up behind, you know, in the green room before a concert in Del Mar and we'll make it happen just based on that concept. So we talked about Scotty, of course, and I just remember he said something along the lines of, you know, first time I heard Scotty, he just drug me around the room, you know, with that sound, listening to him on the record. I thought it was a great image and it was a great interview. And, you know, uh, just to give you my point of view, I've done a lot, a lot of interviews with people who have been interviewed a lot. B.B. King is one that comes to mind, Herbie Hancock, Quincy Jones. And in those interviews, we're always trying to capture something that hasn't already been captured. And that's sort of the icing on the cake. You know, of course, we want to get those quintessential stories like B.B. King talking about Lucille, his famous Gibson guitar. But it's also neat when you can get him talking about things that they don't normally cover or haven't well documented in other interviews. So it's sort of always a pat on the back when somebody says, gosh, you know, nobody's ever asked me that before. It's for, for my world, that's kind of a, you know, a, a grand slam. So uh, that's one of the reasons I like this clip. But the other reason is he's just a really nice guy. And, and after meeting him and hanging out with him, I, uh, I don't think I've put down any of his music since. You know, I just get more and more deep into the different facets, uh, not only the big band stuff that he did and the rockabilly uh, movement that he uh, continued to to ride that great wave, but some of the compositions that he's done in recent years. Just fascinating, talented guy. And so uh, I picked for my next clip, um, Brian Setzer. Do you have memories of going to music stores when you were a kid? Like, did you ever get the Manny's or anything like that? That's a great question. I've never been asked that. Oh, heck, man. I remember just, like, taking the bus all the way up, you know, way past my zone, you know, out, uh, all the way to Hempstead, and, you know, just, just so I could see guitars. And there was another guy named Gary. He, um, it was We had a shop called Grayson's Music, 
And, you know, I would go there just because this older guy, Gary, would go, but he would fix the guitars and he would talk to us young guys and he'd give us, you know, a guitar to play, you know, and that was such a big deal for us, you know, to play a real Telecaster or something or, you know, Les Paul. We couldn't afford those and he would let us play it, you know, so it was a big thing. Uh, we did that all the time, you know, or to go to Manny's or something on 48th Street. That was the big thing to go to Manhattan, you know, and actually get into those shops. That was a little less personal because there was real, you know, it was a real music store with guys coming in and out buying stuff. And uh, but yeah, that, that was a big deal to actually do all that. That was a great memory. That's cool. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. <laughs> I remember Manny's with all the pictures, right? Yeah. Uh, anybody else who's been in there? They, yeah, they had a picture of Buddy Holly, you know, autographed with a Strat. I remember seeing that going, even then thinking it was special. You know, well, look at this. Buddy Holly bought a Strat here. You know, I think it was the one that he really used, you know, the, the 58, I think it was. I think I think he got it at Manny's, you know. It's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Great that's, clip. That's great. Grayson's music coming up again. I know, just, second time. Just one of those stores. <laughs> Very cool. So where are we going next? Whose th favorite clip is next? Uh, the next one's Mike's, so he's got to introduce it. Okay. Oh. So this one, this one's an all-time favorite. And so me and Dan um, took a trip to the Boston area in 2017, last year, um, to capture some interviews. And I'm originally from the Boston area, so it was kind of like going back home which was nice i needed help yeah i was, I was getting lost <laughs> dan going was getting the wrong lost. way on the street <laughs> <laughs> and um one of our interviews was with um a music publisher uh tony santarella and the reason why this interview is one of my favorites is just because of how animated tony is <laughs> he is i mean he's one of my favorite people ever now just from that interview <laughs> it's like a cartoon isn't he yeah he Passionate really is. is an understatement yeah <laughs> and and it was one of those interviews too where when i was editing a web clip for him it was like i i couldn't it was so hard to choose there were so many different parts that i that i could pick from and his stories would be very long <laughs> and very detailed so that was another another uh problem with trying to pick out a web clip um but I think I captured the spirit of Tony in what we did end up using for his web clip. And even without video, you can really see um, what kind of guy he is. So let's hear from Tony. Charlie says, uh, go get that kid. And so I came upstairs. Yeah, well, can I have Mr. Hanson? How you doing? Good, good. He goes, come here. Look out that window. So we were on the third floor and we looked down the garage. You see that van down there? I said, yeah. He goes, I want you to fill it up with books and drive to New Orleans. Call me when you get there. Okay. So I go down. I get the van. Now, I don't know the catalog. I didn't even know who John Brimhall was, right? And so I go, I don't know. I grab five of these. I've got a lot of jazz stuff because, you know, I'd see some David Baker and some Horace Silver or I'd see something like that. So I grabbed 10 of these, 20 of these, 50 of these, and the carpenter that was worked for Hanson and was on the presses made some shelving in the van, you know? So it had the, I was a Hanson handy dandy van man, okay? So it had the picture, it had this, the, uh, the, uh, the thing on there, the uh, Motorola thing, right? And so uh, he would have me take pictures, and later on have pictures, but what happened was, I said, Ramon, what's he wants me to drive? Yeah, go to New Orleans, and when you get there, just call him. He'll tell you, you know, I'll help you. I'll, I'll, I'll translate for you. I said, all right. 
So I'm driving across Alligator Alley in this van. It's loaded with books, right? And so, you know, stuff's falling off the shelves. And, you know, so I'm driving through 41, I think it was, Tamiami Trail. And so I get to Sarasota and I come out of the, the, the swamp. And I said, you know, this thing, man, this is just brutal. So back then we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have computers. We didn't, all I thought of was I got to unload some of this stuff. I put way too much in it. And I go, I know what I'll do. I'll see if there's any stores in his town. See if there's anybody who knows this stuff. So I went to the phone booth and I ripped out the yellow pages. So I just tore out music stores, right? So I went to the first one. I said, hey, I, I'm, I'm, I'm Char you know Charlie Hanson? Yeah, yeah, we know Charlie. I said, well, I'm just, he told me to drive his van to New Orleans, but it's loaded with books. Do you trade with him? He says, yeah. All right, well, can you see if you want any of this stuff? I'm sure you wouldn't mind if I sold it. So the guy comes out. Oh, wow. Comes five of these, six of these, eight of these, ten of these, three of these. And I'm going, oh, this is awesome, man. This is awesome. I'm going, this is fun. I'm going. And so he grabbed. So the next stop, I, I, now I just, now I'm getting, now I'm thinking, what, man, wouldn't it be great if the van was empty when I got to New Orleans, right? And so, so I go to the next stop. And the next stop, and then one guy goes, "Give me fifteen of those." I said, "I only get two, no, I only got yeah. Give me give me five of those that are five. And I said, "Now, why are you buying five of those?" He goes, "Well, see, this tune right here, Three Blind Mice, they did an E flat, so they, the kids learn the black keys." They go, "Oh yeah." So the next stop, the guy looking at the books, I said, "Oh, he goes, uh, yeah, give me a couple of those." I said, two. I said, "The guy down there just bought five. You got an E flat. You got got uh, row 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 your bows. Come on." He goes, "All right, tell me take that." So I go all the way up. So then I go, Sarasota, I go, you know, all the way up, Clearwater, Tampa, all the way up and around. I bang on the left, I come down to New Orleans, I pull in New Orleans. And now mind you, I didn't have a credit card, so I just I, that was just a kid, right? You don't have credit cards then. So I just had the cash. And so um I called Miami. So uh oh, hold on, Mr. Hans has been asking for you. I said, Oh, he has? Oh well, okay. So he gets on the phone, hey. Where are you? I said, I'm in New Orleans. Where the hell have you been? I said, well, I, I've, been, I've been selling books. I kept, couldn't drive the truck no more. It was like I was going to need new tires. He goes, well, what do you want? I said, the van's empty. He said, Jesus. So that's what started my business, my life in this business. I just imagine, so Mike is, <laughs> I don't know if Mike's ever mentioned it, but he's originally from the Boston area. And I imagine Mike's the anomaly, but the rest of Boston is just like Tony. And I want them to be, I so desperately want them to be. I mean, a lot of them are, which is great. And I just love it. It just yeah. reminds me of home. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, passionate is an understatement. Yeah. And talk about that sales technique. I know. Oh man, natural salesman. And that's pretty much how he built his whole business. Absolutely. And it's it's insane Amazing. this empire that he's built all mm -hmm. by himself. I mean, he started working for Hanson, and and that's really how he got his foot uh, feet wet in the uh, music publishing. But. I mean, how many books did he say he put out? Like, yeah, it's, hundreds. An, it's, amazing. it's amazing. Yeah, very talented. So thanks to Tony. I mean, you really, you make our day more often than you'd probably think over <laughs> here. So you're good an awesome choice, guy. Mike. That was very, very good. All right, Dan, last one to round out this episode. So I thought I would choose um, the web clip from Ierto Moreira, who is a uh, percussionist from Brazil. And in 2006, I was able to catch up with him at the Percussive Arts Society's annual meeting called PASIC. 
which was a great uh, opportunity for us to collect a couple of interviews. In fact, the guy who was right after him was Ed Shaughnessy from The Tonight Show. So it was kind of a, a nice uh, event for me to uh, hang out with some of my favorite drummers and percussionists. And Erito tells a great story. Um, I can't do it justice, so we'll let him uh, describe the early years of his passion for music. From time to time, I would sit in the middle of the kitchen and just go... You know, do some stuff and uh, noises and things. And uh, so my, uh, she was, my, my mother was very worried, and my father, you know. And uh, they, uh, she decided actually to, uh, to write to my grandma that she lived in a, you know, uh, in a bigger place, you know. And so she wrote a letter to my grandmother, and my mother, my grandmother wrote it back and said, uh, okay, uh, you know, here is some money, and uh, she put some money in, inside of the letter, you know, the envelope, said, here is some money to, for you to take the bus, and uh, then you bring a year to here, and we, you know, we can watch him, observe him, and and we'll take him to, uh, to the doctor or to a hospital or whatever, you know. And so uh, we went, and uh, you know, that time they used to send uh, uh, money inside of uh, envelopes, you know, with a letter, which is something we cannot do it anymore, of course. And when we got there, uh, we got to her house, and uh, the first day was okay, nothing happened, the second day, okay. And then uh, one day, just uh, I was sitting in the middle of the uh, living room, and I started going, ah! you know, like this. And she, my mother, she was, she said, "Mom, mom, come," you know. He's doing it again. He's having a seizure, you know. And uh, so they, she, my my grandma looked at me. And for a little, little bit, and then she reached for the radio, and she turned the radio off, and I stopped. And uh, and she looked to my my mom, and she said, "Oh my God, he's going to be a musician! Oh wow!" You know, it was like that. So uh, <laughs> it was like a curse, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a good plot twist. I didn't see that yeah. coming. <laughs> oh my God, he's going to be a musician. No. <laughs> Not that. Uh, that was fun. Oh, that was a good yeah. one. That was a good one to end on, too. So great choice. Well, this choice. has been fun. Thank you guys for sharing your favorite web clips. And if people want to watch these, where should they go, Mike? They should go to www.nam.org. That's nam, N-A-M-M dot org slash library. And all of our videos are there. Awesome. Yeah. And thanks for listening. And thanks to everybody who's contributed on the NAM Oral History um, Collection. We really appreciate you guys taking time to sit with Dan and contribute. It's been great. And we'll see you in two weeks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.